Welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we dig in more depth into the passage that we looked at on Sunday. I'm David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. Yesterday we looked at Jeremiah chapter 7, and we saw the way that the Word of God exposes the truth that behind a facade of worship and obedience, that God's people were stubbornly idolatrous and wicked. Dave, thanks so much for opening God's Word for us. It's a pleasure. And you just mentioned to us before we started, this is the one-year anniversary of Sermon Seasonings. This episode came out on the 5th of May last year, so happy birthday to Sermon Seasonings. And I get to press another button on our desk. Long round of applause. Okay, enough of that. We need to get on with it. So <laughs> let me tell you what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at some more context stuff. We're, we, we moved from Manasseh last week, and I thought because it's part of the section that we're looking at, chapters 2 to 10, that we get introduced to Josiah. That's the person who Jeremiah begins his ministry during his reign. And Josiah is a very different guy to Manasseh. So I thought we'd have a look at that and think about the placing of the passage, chapter 7, how it related to the rest of the book. Then I thought we'd have a look at the poetry sections. So chapter 2 and 10 is actually mostly poetry. The section we looked at on Sunday is prose, but the poetry around it is is really deep and, and wonderful if you get the chance to read through and reflect upon it, and it really shows a God who cares. Then uh, what we're going to have a look at is really bring it home to what it means for us as Christians. Mm. We're going to think about the relationship between grace and works, between living as a Christian and yet at the same time being a sinner, and then we're going to look at the great truth and how wonderful it is to have an intercessor Mm. in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're going to go to today. So lots to cover. Let's get stuck straight into the context stuff and think about so these two kings. We've got the contrast of Manasseh and Josiah. Yeah, so Josiah becomes king when he's only eight years old. So he's he's a really... Uh, he's a young boy when he becomes king. And when you're reading two kings, you find that he goes and looks for a book of the law. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then he does these these great works from that. In Chronicles, we get a little bit more of the story and understand that he didn't just start turning to the Lord and doing the right thing when they found the book of the law. He started earlier. So in 2 Chronicles 34 verse 3, we actually read that it's in the eighth year of his reign. So he's a 16-year-old. When he's still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah, poles and idols. So he really got going early. And then in verse 8 of chapter 34, we read about the next bit. That in the eighteenth year of Josiah's reign, so now he's 26, in order to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. And so what we see there is that he's not just getting rid of some of the idols. He's really trying to reform what's going on. He's actually investing time and energy into into spruiking up a temple that had obviously been uh, left to decay mm. a little bit um, in order to honour God. And it's when he does that that he finds the book of the law, mm. or Hilkiah the priest does. And then when he reads that, he tears his robes and he goes, oh my goodness, it's worse than I thought. He obviously clearly thought it was bad to start off with. Now he's going, it's even worse. And then he just goes nuts. He goes throughout the land and completely purges Judah of all its idolatry. It's it's an amazing act of determined reform. Now, Josiah, we remember that Manasseh reigned for 55 years. Well, Josiah reigned for 31 years. So even though he died at the age of 39, 31-year reign, 
And the reforms had been going on for about 23 years. And so you, there's only one verdict on Josiah. Mm. The guy was a legend. And so that's what we read in 2 Kings. Do you want to read that for us? Yeah, so uh, chapter 23, verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. Hugely big thing to say. It it calls to mind, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength from Deuteronomy. It talks about the law of Moses, and it's like Josiah was just a cracker. Well, there's neither before nor after him. Is there anyone like him? There is nothing that you can compare him to. It's like he's the one good blip on what yeah. is a dreadful... So, son of Josiah is not going to be like Josiah, and that is exactly what we read. He had... Other sons, all of them became kings, yeah. and none of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoahaz, you, know, you can read about him in verse 31 of chapter 23. He, did, he says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was only king for three months. Yep, and it's just as his predecessors did. Just as his predecessors did, not Josiah. So as you know, Jehoahaz is being likened to Manasseh, Manasseh and those kings, not his own actual father. Yep. The same things read about Jehoiakim. We're told yep. that he's 25 years old when he becomes king. He reigns in Jerusalem for 11 years, but he does evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. And so you go, whatever reforms Josiah did, Josiah was doing them. Yep. He was the one who was driving them. And no doubt there were some others. I suspect this Hilkiah the priest was probably a good guy. Yep. There were other prophets around. But the majority of the people didn't even penetrate to his own sons. Yeah. Even his own sons did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the reforms of Josiah were his reforms, but it hadn't impacted the people. And that is going to be really important when we come to Jeremiah. We come to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, where we read this. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, but verse 10 is interesting, in spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. So you get a hint there that whatever reforms that either Hezekiah had done before or Josiah following him, it it had it was a veneer. It hadn't yeah. penetrated to the populace. And so the great crimes of idolatry and, and disobedience were endemic and, and even the reforms of Josiah couldn't, yeah. couldn't deal with it. Um, so... I thought we'd have a look a bit at, at, at some of the poetry there. So chapter 2 to 6 and 8 to 10 of our section, we're dealing with chapters 2 to 10, they're mostly poetry. And in the middle of our section of of our prose is our section of prose, 7 verse 1 to 8 verse 3 that we looked at on Sunday. Our only time reference is that part from chapter 3. But then in chapter 7, the content suggests that all of the things, this is during Josiah's time, it would appear, but it's like, well, didn't Josiah destroy half of these things and yet we're reading about them in the section we looked at on Sunday? Okay. How is What's going on there? And the answer is, is that the, the editor of the final book of Jeremiah, which was presented during the exile, remember we looked about yep. that last yep. week, has taken chapter 7 from the reign of Jehoiakim later and has put it in this section as a bit of a summary what Israel had been doing and the charges made against them. Um, so it, it could be that they're just, this is a, in Jeremiah's sermon, he's referring to what they did in the past, but the preaching suggests that it's more an indictment of the present. Mm. It's judgment against what's going on in and out of the temple. So you might remember from yesterday, chapter 7, verse 30, 
The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They've built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Mm. Now we know from history Josiah destroyed those. Yeah. Um, but it would appear that by the reign of Jehoiakim, they're all back. back. And and that this chapter has just been brought early. Yep. So why would you do that? Why like, would you why do would that? you bring that early? Yeah. So why would now we've talked about this last week that the book of Jeremiah is not arranged chronologically entirely. Yeah. Um, but more thematically. And remember we, we we said what you need to do with Jeremiah is you need to take stop, go to a high level and go, where am I in the big movements yep. of the book? And we're still in movement one. And that is that the word of the Lord announces Judah's destruction and its speaker is crushed. So this first section is like the charge sheet that is yep. being laid against Judah. That will then progress later on. Um, but so at the moment, the whole section is about doing that. And so the writer of Jer- the, com- the final editor of Jeremiah has brought this section earlier because it belongs in the section where there is a charge. Yep. Um, so a speech that Jeremiah makes later on during the reign of Jehoiakim would fit quite well here. Uh, it's pulled out of that section, which deals, that section later on, deals with the showdown between Jeremiah and those opposed to him. And it puts it here in the section where the charges against Judah are laid out. So it, it's kind of a better spot for it mm. in terms of the main goals. Yep. So if we actually have a look at that later section, it will help tie some of this together. So do you want to read for us chapter 26, verses 1 to 9? And what I want you to do is hear the similarities to the sermon that we just looked at from Jeremiah. Yep. So early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people from the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, This is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my laws, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, although you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city a curse among all the nations of the earth. And that's not a bad summary, really, of of the sermon from chapter 7, verse 1 to 8, verse 3. I do want to keep reading. The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So they're angry at him. But you, what you see by that last section is that this is describing a confrontation between the people and Jeremiah. And that's really what the second movement of Jeremiah's book is about. Yeah. It's about the showdown between false and true such that the Lord's prophet is vindicated. Mm. That's what the second section is about. And so that's why the, the composer of Jeremiah has pulled the content of the speech that was a charge against them and put it in the section that's dealing with the charges, charges against against them. against them. So so that's, if you're going 
what was going on. <laughs> That's why the arrangement. So, and, it, and it helps to reinforce the fact that this is broken up in a thematic way, right. addressing how do people respond to the word of God. Right. So let's have a look at the poetry because it, it's it's really beautiful and moving. And, and it is one of these things that reinforces to us that God's judgment is not... Uh, cold and dispassionate, like somebody who's going through uh, the the reports of their company and goes, oh, that department's not doing very well according to this chart, so I'm going to eliminate them. It's far more personal than that. So uh, what we're going to get a window into is how God feels. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to have a look at some sections here. So do you want to read us chapter 2, verse 2 to 5? So go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. It's it's like someone remembering, reminiscing about better times in mm. a relationship, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. It's, yeah. it's quite, um, this is the Lord who loves his people. Yeah. Um, even as he goes, and he's going, what, what did I do wrong that you would treat me like, like this? this. Uh, then if you have a look at, Chapter 31, sorry, a bigger pardon, verses 31 of 32 of chapter 2. I'll read this one. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we're free to roam, we will come to you no more? Does a young woman forget her jewellery, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. He's going, I'm your, I'm meant to be your treasure. Yeah. And you're going, yeah, we don't need him anymore. Mm. Um, chapter 3, do you want to read? Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. It's just, the contrast is <laughs> just smack you in the face. It's say one thing, but yet treat him the absolute opposite. Like we're looking at um, in Mark's Gospel, remembering Isaiah, you know, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're going, why why are you doing this, God? And he's going, but you're doing all the evil you possibly can. Um, 3, 19 to 20. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Again, that that relational mm. um, pathos. Yeah. And uh, that the image of an adulterous woman just mm. is so clear because we understand just how bad and just how damaging that sort of relationship is. That sense of, of, of betrayal. Um, chapter 4, verse 18. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is, how it pierces the heart. It's, it's, it's great. What, what about chapter 4, verse 30 and 31? Do you want to read that? What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. 
I hear a cry as of a woman in labour, a groan as of one bearing her first child, the cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. So it's describing Judah as, as, as making herself beautiful for her lovers, the other nations mm. around them, only to find them plundering uh, yeah. and, and going and hearing the crying out of like a, a woman in labour. And then there's um, 5, 7 to 9, which says, Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. Um, and, and so that, that uh, they, they're well-fed lusty stallions, mm-hmm. each neighbouring for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? So the, the thing you see is, is God is invested in his people. And, and this whole section, chapters 2 to 10, is full of rhetorical questions. Now, what, it, what, is, what do rhetorical questions communicate? They're the sorts of things that you bring out when you're trying to plead with someone mm. or just like I was doing right yeah. then trying trying to make a, a point or an, yeah. or an argument you're trying to persuade you're exasperated why are you doing this to, to me frustration why don't you stop you know grief anger the bottom line is it's personal mm. it's the word of a god who is invested in his people and what they are doing and cares about it not some clinical dispassionate sitting off in the in the planets and, yeah. and wandering off doing whatever he wants to do. But that's not the only set of passion in this poetry. We actually get a window into what it was like for Jeremiah to preach this stuff. Mm-hmm. It was a hard word. If you've ever had to say the hard word to someone, you know it's not easy. Well, it wasn't easy for Jeremiah. So do you want to read a couple of sections that show us how Jeremiah felt about having yeah. to say the hard word? So chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me, I cannot keep silent, for I have heard the sound of the trumpet, I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster, the whole land lies in ruins. In an instant my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Jeremiah is not dispassionate here. (laughs) And, and he's, he's not going, sucked in, guys, you all asked for it. He, he's, he's going, I, I, I know judgment's coming and, yep. and, it, and it, is, it is causing me pain. Um, and then you have chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. Uh, let me read that to you. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who's going to listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I, I'm full of the wrath of the Lord and I cannot hold it in. Mm-hmm. It, it pour it out on the children in the street and on the young men gathered there, etc. But the idea, I can't, I can't not say hey. what I have to say. I'm full of this word, and it just has to come out. Yeah. Um, chapter and eight, eight verse twenty to nine verse one. The harvest is past, and the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn, and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. It's a, it's a, a beautiful picture of someone who's saying what has to be said and, and 
um, and sees it not being listened to and just goes, this is, this is distressing. It just, it's always one of those things when, when we talk about judgment as Christians, it should never be with glee. No. It should never be as if um, we got it all right and you've got it all wrong. I've heard it, it said also, when we talk about judgment and, and the punishment upon, upon sinners and those who reject Jesus, it should always in, be through a veil of tears yeah. um, because but for the grace of God, there go I, and it really matters. I think there's one other little bit of poetry that I, I just think is is great to do. This is this is a bit bolshy. This is the Lord going. It's 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 a conversation between Jeremiah and the Lord, where where Jeremiah is going. People aren't listening to me, and God goes, "Oh, they will." Yeah. So, do you want to read it to us? Five twelve to fourteen. They have lied about the Lord. They said He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let us, so let what they say be done to them. So, so what's that? Descri- that's describing is he's going. Uh, everyone's going. I'll talk what you want, Jeremiah. You're just you're just blowing out wind. Mm. Um, and in fact, all of your negativity may it come back on you. Yeah. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says: because the people have spoken these words. I will make my words in your mouth a fire and these people the wood it consumes. Great, isn't it? So they're going, Jeremiah's saying, they're saying my words are but wind and he says, oh, I'm going to make them fire <laughs> yep. and they'll, they will be consumed by the fire that comes out of your mouth. So it's, it's a, a wonderful section there. there. There's one other thing that I thought that I'd mention just while we're looking at the poetry that is, is worth noting. Uh, a later section of Jeremiah's um, prophecy is going to deal more with the hope that is there to come. In fact, it's the end section of of, of part two yeah. where, where the, the prophet is vindicated. And once he is vindicated, then hope can be pronounced. But I want to point out that there are a couple of points even here where there is there is hope in this section mm. that is all is the big charge sheet. Themes of, but it's not going to be, I'm not going to wipe you from the face of the earth. And, and it's not just for Judah, it's for Israel and Judah. Do you want to just read 3, 12 to 18? Go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favours to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you your shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honour the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In these days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your in, your ancestors as an inheritance. It, it You know, the, the great... 
symbol of the promises that God is their God in the Ark of the Covenant. He said, people aren't going to remember the Ark of the Covenant when I'm done. Yeah. They're going to remember something far, far greater. And it's just this beautiful promise hidden in this sea of passionate poetry mm. about a wayward people and the judgment they deserve. And there's a couple of other points in Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 where it talks about the fact that the judgment's going to happen but it will not be just complete, complete. because he is going to honour this promise that he makes in, in Chapter 3. So um, that's the kind of the poetry section. Uh, now I thought we'd talk about the challenge of living as a Christian mm. and at the same time as um, presuming upon grace or, or living as a person of God but, at the, uh, but taking God's grace for granted. There's a point that um, came up in our passage but also comes up a hundred years earlier in the 8th century prophets, Hosea and Micah, that point out exactly what Jeremiah said, and that is if you think that it's all about you going through the motions with your religious stuff, you, you've misunderstood it. I, what I really want from you is a people that will relate to me like I'm your God mm. and like you care about me. And so there's two famous passages in the Old Testament. So Hosea 6 verse 6, which says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Don't throw all of these sacrifices at me. It's not that they shouldn't have done that. Mm. He's going, I'm not interested in that when it comes locked in with disobedience mm. and a rejection of me. Um, Micah 6 verses 6 to 8, which is a very important passage. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So salvation was never there for God's people to take it cheaply. Mm. For him to be their God and to dwell in their midst did not mean like, in our passage, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, um, we're, we're safe no matter what. Yeah. Um, and the equal thing that could be ringing, you know, he's, sti he's still, salvation is the purpose of creating the relationship that was meant to be, yeah. that was broken by sin. It is redemption. It is bringing back of the right order of that relationship. God's grace and salvation is always to be accompanied by um, love and obedience mm -hmm. by his people. It's restoring a good thing. And so sometimes you can hear exactly the same sort of language um, on, on the lips of, of Christians. Oh, I believe once saved, always saved. It's, you may as well be saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If, if I believe once saved, always saved means I can now do what I want. And seem, sometimes even people accuse Christianity, certainly accuse evangelical Christianity, of being a cheap way out. You know, mm. that you don't have to obey anymore because you've got grace. You go, no, you've misunderstood grace. Yeah, because I've just played my get-out-of-jail-free card. There's mm. my Jesus card. Mm. I'm done. And so people that are accusing um, a gospel of grace say that, well, well, you're just making obedience unnecessary. So you've got these two opposing things. You've got uh, a sense that I can do whatever I want because um, God's going to forgive me anyway. And then you've got the others who say that actually a gospel of grace entails that, mm. that it means that... Obviously, then it can't be true because then you could do whatever you want. And going, both of them are wrong. And this is exactly the argument that comes up um, that Paul deals with after his magisterial, mm. I know that word sounds pretentious, <laughs> but it really is, Romans 1 to 5, 
it's not really as pretentious, it's really his magisterial, <laughs> chapters 1 to 5 of Romans where he really talks through what the, the wonderful gospel of grace by faith alone um, and not by works, and he deals with a couple of objections, and he does this in Romans 6, and we're just going to have a little bit of a look at it because it's very helpful to be reminded of. Yep. So 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those that have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then in verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So you get this thing. So the objection is when I sin... If God shows me grace and that shows us how wonderful God is, then if I sin more, God looks even better because he gets to pour out all of this grace. Grace might increase. Um, and, and Paul's point is, no, it, it's completely misunderstanding this. The, the whole purpose of this is, is that that way of sin is done away with mm. and you don't, it is not your It is not your master. We'll get onto that in a second. Yeah. But it is not what, um, it, it's not where you belong now. You've been restored into this mm. great relationship with God and so you offer yourselves not as instruments of wickedness, but as instruments of righteousness because you can. I'm no longer under the mastery of this sin. Yeah. And so it then goes on to talk about um, another objection. So do you want to read verse 15? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefits you reap lead to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that description is what is life, real life, is is living in obedience mm. to God. That that is that is that how we were made to be. That is where joy and and fulfilment and is found. And that's what being saved from our sin actually uh, enables us to do. So so grace always leads to obedience Be- mm. and, and in a sense the christian mindset is being i obey because i can yeah and 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 i now have the i've been released to this wonderful opportunity 
rather than some sort of I can do whatever I still sinfully want because the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, or because, hey, Jesus died for my sins, so I'm, I'm off scot-free. It completely doesn't get the whole purpose of salvation. Mm. So, um, so that, that addresses both the idea of complacency with sin you can't do that. You've been saved for something. You've got to be dead to sin. It's got to be dead to you. But at the same time, it, it is uh, a complete distortion of the gospel of grace to say um, that it leads to disobedience. No, it actually shouldn't lead to the freest obedience of all. Um, now, one of the things that I wanted to, to finish off with as, as we look at this is um, often when we hear... Uh, there are some people that need to be shaken out of their complacency, and and I think all of us at various points need that. We need God's anger at sin to really hit home, to go, I, I've just been sitting with this, I've been sitting with that, I've let this ha- good habit go, I've embraced this bad one, and it's time for me to wake up, it's time for me to change. And and that is one of the, the great things that God does to us, he, is he reminds us of his anger at sin to bring us back to him and to and to shake us out of our slumber. Mm. Well, away it goes, yeah, sleeper, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but sometimes we can, when we're especially conscious of our, of our sin and of our, um, of our failings, the reminder of God's anger can add it and just anger at it can, can distress us. Mm. And, and it can make us go, look, I know I'm keep told doing that there's forgiveness in Christ, but really? Even me, I mean, I'm yeah. just, I'm that bad, and so uh, it's it's really helpful as we got reminded on on Sunday to to look at this wonderful theme of of mediation. Mm-hmm. So I will never get to heaven because I am so good. It's never going to be my own achievement. It and throughout the scriptures, we get this modelled of the fact that it is actually the acts of another that save sinners and we even see it in the old testament so you see it in the whole priestly system yeah that was all about having a mediator between a sinful people and and a holy god right but it's not just in the system of the temple um so the example we used on, on sunday about abraham and who who interceded not just for um for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but for Lot and for others. You see it with Moses regularly during the wandering in the wilderness, standing between God and him going, I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm going to wipe these people out. Moses goes, please don't. Please don't. You know, what would that mean for your name? What would Mm. all of that? And so you get Moses, the one whom God um, treats as a friend, we we read, um, him going, all right, Moses, because you're arguing for them, even though they very much deserve this, I will listen to your argument as an intercessor. You then have Samuel doing the yep. same thing. You have David doing it. You have Isaiah doing it yep. um, on, on behalf of, of Israel. And you get many others. And so this idea of the righteous interceding for the wicked is what regularly throughout the story of the Old Testament sees a wayward people let off the hook mm. and, and, um, and having being shown grace because of the righteousness of another. Um, so, and God listens to their plea. Now, this consciousness of the importance of having someone else advocate for us is something that has never disappa- disappeared from mm. Christianity. What we often see is in modern, um, uh, like Roman Catholicism 
and uh, and Greek Orthodox and and Orthodox churches is this idea of that I need someone else to advocate for me has gone has carried on for centuries for for millennia actually yeah. since the early church uh, in an unhelpful way. So it's moved even though we have the wonderful story of the New Testament. There's still the thought of yeah, but I still need somebody else, and so you, you they'll set up the the need for the church to intercede for you and to pronounce penance for you and to to say well I, I'll you know to accept you on God's behalf mm. and and then to I will pray for you so that God will let you off as if the priest is the advocate you you have the whole praying to Mary concept I've had many Catholics mm. say to me Jesus is far more likely to listen to his own mother than he is to me and that is why I pray to Mary because he will listen to her because surely he he loves her more than he loves me mm. and you're thinking that's actually as we'll read a, a crime against Jesus yeah. you the same thing with the saints the thought that these were clearly holy people that did what God wanted they've died they're bound to be right next to God right now and so I'm stuffing up down here. They're in perfection. They can talk to Jesus yep. and do it all, and he's far more likely to listen. Yeah. And we go, no, we don't need that. And so we actually have the wonderful intercession of God himself. Why do I need a saint or Mary or a, a priest mm. um, interceding for me when God himself is pleading for me? So we're going to sort of conclude with two magnificent sections of scripture the first one is is in hebrews do you want to read for us hebrews verses 7 to 28 okay. uh, 23 to 28 so now there have been many of those priests since death pre prevented them from continuing in office but because jesus lives forever he has a permanent priesthood therefore he is able to save completely those who come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them such a high priest truly meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as a high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. So I'm a sinner. I've got nothing that I can offer to God of my own, mm. but I have someone who is perfectly offering always his own sacrifice mm. for me yeah. and and um, and is always in the presence of his Father. Why do I need somebody else to tell Jesus to do something he's already doing for me? Yeah, um, and, and you yeah. have that and I have that too. Yes, I have that same Jesus that I can go straight to that is doing that. Yeah. Like that he's interceding on my behalf to the Father at the same time as he's interceding on your behalf to the Father. And there's this wonderful argument that comes in the next passage that we're looking at, Romans 8. So in Romans 8, we're reminded that not only do I have God the Son interceding for me, I have God the Holy Spirit who knows me inside out. He's also interceding for me. And then there's this wonderful rhetorical phrase that comes at the end of this section that you're about to read that says, who's going to bring any charge against me when God himself is the one who stands and says, they are mine? So Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. How about that line there? Might be fully met in Mm, us. Yeah. Okay, what about verse 14? So for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. in order that we might also share in his glory. That idea of of the spirit dwelling in us, testifying to, to the goodness mm. of our relationship with yep. God and to, and to that filial um, relationship, it, it's brilliant. And the spirit does more than that. Do you want yep. to read verse 26? In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so that that when I feel burdened by guilt, isn't that a promise Mm. to to hold on to? Uh, We end from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So chapters 2 to 10 are... Eight chapters of charges pointing to the sin of God's people. Um, what a what a liberation! What a freedom to know that there can be no charge. Even we know what mm. we've done, yeah. but there can be no charge that can be brought against us because Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and He's interceding for us. It's the wonderful freedom of the gospel. Yeah, and that's probably a good place to finish. I've been Dave. Uh, I've been Mandy. Join us again next week as we continue our series in Jeremiah. Next week we'll be focusing on chapter 16 and looking at the consequences of our sinfulness. 